Welcome to the Storytellers Lab podcast, where everyday people share real and personal stories of encounters with God. I'm Robin, and I'm here with Lindy and Katie, and we are back with our first episode of 2021. (laughs) Um, Yes, Happy New Year, Happy 2021. Ring in the new year. And prayer on the front end (laughs) is that this year is a whole new year. New season. (laughs) New, new, everything new. Today, we have a story from Mary Beth, who actually shared at our Birmingham Highway 280 location Mm -hmm. in the fall. And so when you hear it, you're going to hear them outside. (laughs) You're going to hear birds chirping. I kind (laughs) of loved it. And so this was recorded early fall, but we we saved it until now because we just felt like it was a really important story to hear in January after the holidays, beginning of the new year. Yeah. One of the things I love about Mary Beth is she's a teacher, first of all. You can tell in her story because she's she teaches so wonderfully through her story, but she's so transparent. She's so vulnerable talking about the struggles she has had with anorexia. And while that seems super heavy, it is such a beautiful story of redemption that I think that especially in this new year of just seeing the beauty that God can bring from ashes is something all of us need. So I think you're really, really going to get something out of it today. Yes. And just a fun little fact before we start Mary Beth's story, you're going to hear her talk about calling her high school best friend in this story. <laughs> and as she talks about her experience in high school and how her best friend, you know, responded to that mm-hmm. and what it looked like to her, y'all, I found <laughs> out after Mary Beth had shared that her high school best friend was my college roommate. That's crazy. It's a small world. I had no idea. And so anyways, I love when God does little mm-hmm. things like that. You mm-hmm. know, it's just, it's wild. Anyways, I thought that y'all would find that fun because I've <laughs> still kind of been blown away by it. But anyways, here is Mary Beth's story. 2020 is behind us and we're in the new year. Yippee. And if you have been a listener of Storytellers Live for a while, or if you're brand new, you know that we have been partnering with Never Thirst for quite some time. And one of our highlights of 2020 was actually partnering with you and with Never Thirst to build a well in Cambodia. And Never Thirst is a Birmingham-based ministry that brings clean water and access to Jesus and the gospel to communities in Asia and Africa. So we want to thank you for partnering with us to build the well in Cambodia. And if you haven't partnered with Never Thirst yet, we invite you to. You can change the stories of women in need around the world. And one mother, this is so cool, one mother in the DR Congo said, since we received a water filter for our home, my children can now attend school. And I haven't heard them complaining as they used to. As a mother, I'm grateful and I thank Never Thirst for their generous support to my family because I now have peace. So we're inviting you to give the gift of peace to more women and learn how you can partner with Never Thirst at neverthirstwater.org today. Thank you all so much for coming today. I see every single person here means so much to me, and I am really honored to be sharing my story today. I was talking with a friend of mine recently who had been listening to a sermon, and the pastor in the sermon was talking about pain points in life and how to move forward from them. And I feel like that when she said that, that that phrase, a pain point, and then moving forward from that pain point adequately describes or kind of sums up my story. And there was a pain point in my life, and it was a battle with anorexia that changed the entire trajectory of my life. And my hope is that by sharing my story today, that it allows someone who hears it to know that you are not alone, that help and healing are possible, and that your struggles do not define you. 
I grew up in a loving and stable home. I have two encouraging and supporting parents, Dennis and Anne, and I say that so humbly and gratefully. And I'm an only kid, and I don't know what goes through your minds when I say that. Probably some of it's right and some of it's not right, but I'm an only kid, and I don't know if this comes along with being an only child, but I pretty much came out of the womb as a people pleaser. I'm pretty sure my first sentence was, did I do that okay? Everybody okay with that? Needing that approval. And I have always really wanted to please everybody around me, which will come into play later in my story. I was very fortunate to have had a very happy childhood. In addition to loving parents, I had an awesome extended family with grandparents and cousins and aunts and uncles. And it's really honestly, and I thought about this a lot in preparation for this, really difficult for me to recall many negative memories from my childhood, which I don't say lightly and I don't take for granted. And any stress or anxiety when I think about certain memories usually was around people pleasing. And I'll give you a silly example to show you how this sort of bit me in my life. Um, My grandparents, lived in in Birmingham and we lived in Montgomery. And so when it was holidays or every so often, we would just take a trip, obviously, to come see them. And we would ride up here and my parents sometimes would take different cars because my mom was a teacher and my dad was a sales rep. So their schedules were a little bit different. And when they would ride in different cars, they would ask me, who do you want to ride with? And I would like have a panic attack, you know? And I would say, well, dad, how about I ride up with you halfway and then we'll stop and I'll ride with mom the rest of the way. And they were like, hey, kid, we're going to the same place. You know, but that just shows you that I did not want to hurt anyone's feelings. And so I was always tending to people around me. And even with those memories, though, as I look back, I am so grateful for my childhood and for people who were extremely important to me and really shaped my life, including pastors and youth pastors and teachers and coaches. And I had a lot of positive influences. I enjoyed school. I had friends who I loved. And I just remember being happy. I had a great church who had introduced me to Jesus as an 11-year-old kid and who I had accepted. And life, of course, was not perfect, but it was as simple. When I look back on my childhood, I think of it being simple and happy as best I can remember. And one of the most distinct memories that I have as a teenager was in the spring of 1991. I was almost 14 years old, and I went to a Dawson McAllister conference. Now, some of you may recognize that name, but just in case, Dawson McAllister was a youth evangelist, and the whole conference was about struggles. And I was listening to him talk, and and I was watching people around me share their stories, and I realized that I could not identify. And I even have a vivid memory of leaning over to our youth pastor during one of the sessions and just saying, I just can't really relate to the topic, to this topic of a big struggle. And it is so ironic to look back on that moment, not realizing what was just around the corner. And the first tragedy that I remember in our family was the fall of that same year when I was 14 and my granddad and my great grandmother died within a few weeks of each other. We had just moved into a new house and they both passed away. And even though for both of them, their deaths were, were merciful because of health issues. It is my first memory. It was a very pivotal moment for me because it was my first memory of deep pain. So a few months later, my mom told me that I was going to have my wisdom teeth out. And the appointment was scheduled for July 2 of 1992. I had just turned 15. And I don't know if you've had your wisdom teeth out, but you may have been one of those fortunate ones who you had them out and the next day no one could even tell that you had your wisdom teeth out. But I was not one of those people. Um, I had my wisdom teeth out and I swelled up 
huge. And I remember like feeling and kind of looking like a bloated chipmunk. And my sweet mama, who is the biggest encourager of my life, kept telling me that it was not that obvious. And that was the time of my life, you know, when I was kind of learning how to do makeup and stuff. It's funny because when I look back on like my sixth, seventh and eighth grade years, I would give anything to have that confidence. Because when I was learning how to do makeup, there are pictures where blue eyeshadow is above my eyebrows. And I, at the time, I did not have a lot of luck within the boy department. And I honestly thought they were intimidated by my beauty. And when I look back at pictures, I don't think it was intimidation by my beauty that, that was going on then. But you know, I thought so. And so I was learning to do makeup. And so, and when my face was this swollen, my mom was like, you know, well, just, just, we can just try a little blush here or there. And, you know, of course it, it, it really didn't help. And my point in telling that is because two days after my surgery, um, we went to a 4th of July cookout. And as I was walking up the driveway, this little kid ran up to me. And the first thing he said was, why is your face so fat? And there's just nothing like the honesty of a kid, right? And uh, so I was, of course, mortified as all teenagers are. But because I was so swollen, I was not able to eat much. And I have to say that looking back, before I was 15 years old, I don't ever think I knew what a calorie was. I, my mom had a healthy, you know, she was, our family was healthy. We never talked about body. I had a great example. You know, it was just, we just did life. And I never thought anything about eating. It was really as if food was a non-issue. And I even have this distinct memory of when I had my wisdom teeth out that my parents had ordered pizza. And I remember walking out onto the back porch and smelling the pizza. And I started crying because I couldn't eat it with them. You know, I was like, this is torture that you're ordering pizza and I can't enjoy it with you. So over a few weeks time, when I had basically just been able to eat liquids and Sprite slushies, I lost weight. And it was not a ton, but it was enough that it made a difference. And at the time, I was cheerleading at my high school. And when we got fitted for uniforms, I remember that I had dropped a couple of sizes. And in fact, I remember that there was this girl on my squad who I really admired. And I got her old uniforms. And I thought, I just remember it being like, oh, well, that's kind of cool. Fast forward a month or two, when I got back to school that fall of my sophomore year, it was as if I'd had a bit of a transformation. And I got positive comments on my body and weight loss. And I have thought about this a lot, that I don't even remember what started my restrictive eating. But what I've learned as life has gone on is that's very common with people who struggle with anorexia, that the first thing they cut out of their diet is meat. Um, and I remember doing that. I think that was true for me. And I remember mostly eating carbs, which is kind of ironic in today's protein-focused society. But over the fall of 1992, I kept losing weight as I kept restricting things from my diet more and more. And I saw a picture of myself recently as I was going to attend a homecoming dance, and I realized how thin I had gotten even a few months after my wisdom teeth surgery. And things that fall were going okay at school, but a slight change began to happen because I began to withdraw from friends. And so looking back, two red flags that were in my life were a change in eating habits and a withdrawal from friends. And I began to want to spend more time alone. And I was still cheering, but I had really low energy. And at the time, I had a really sweet boyfriend who was extremely good and kind to me, but I felt myself going into a shell. And I began to lose interest in everything. And things at home were tense, to say the least, which was really painful for me and my mom and my dad, because even though I, of course, had had normal ups and downs as an early teen with my parents, you know, before I was 15 years old, home had always been a safe and joyous place. And now there was major tension and arguing and fighting as my parents' concern grew. 
and they noticed that I was dropping more and more weight and they took me to a counselor. And I'm so glad that we live in a day and age where counseling is encouraged. It's part of corporate programs. I love that. And I always say that healthy people go to counseling, sick people don't. And so, but at the time that my parents took me to counseling, it was not very popular. And I'm so thankful that my parents took me to this man. And however, I mentioned earlier being a people pleaser. And because I'm a people pleaser, I was desperate to please the counselor. And so I often said exactly what he wanted to hear, even though inside I I didn't really have any intention of following through. And if you've ever struggled with any kind of addiction, you know that deception is a huge part of addiction. And so over time, I began to learn ways to deceive and to protect my eating disorder. And there are many examples that I could give you. And this is probably the most painful memory to share with you. And I've really never shared it with anybody, but I'm going to today. So as part of being with this counselor, one of the things that he had me do was weigh in each time that I would go. And I learned ways to deceive him. And an extreme way that I learned to do that was um, I remember one day I was going to school and I, I put on a skirt and I taped five pound weights to my legs. Um, inside of my skirt. It just shows you how thin I had gotten. And I wore them all day at school. I don't know. My husband, I shared this story with him last night and he said, how did you even walk? And I said, I really don't know, but I vividly remember it. And when I got to the doctor, I weighed in, he's looking at me and thinking, I don't see how in the world she weighs what she weighs, but there it is. And then when I got home that night, I took off the weights and my legs were totally bruised. And that action is indicative of what lengths I would go to. And perhaps the most telling sign that things were continuing to get worse was in the spring of 1993. So this is about eight months after my surgery was when I broke up with my boyfriend. And for some reason, the memory of breaking up with him, it's like a dividing line in my head. It was like there was innocence in my life. And from that point on, it was as if I had just launched off a cliff. And from that point on, it was a steep and downward spiral. I continued to lose weight and my parents were desperate. And by the middle of 1993, I was down to 95 pounds and I'm five, seven and a half. And I do not tell that number to draw attention to it, but just to show you how very sick that I was. My struggle was strictly anorexia and restricting, but I also overexercised. And quite frankly, when I look back, I, I don't know how I didn't have a heart attack. By the middle of 1993, I was completely withdrawn from my friends by this point. I had stopped going to church. I'd stopped cheerleading. I just wanted to be home in my room alone. And in preparation for today, I called my best friend from high school, and I wanted to tell her thank you because my friends did something that at the time they did it, I was livid about. But when I look back, the courage of 15 and 16-year-olds is quite moving to my heart that at this time, my friends saw me you know, wasting away before their eyes. And so one of my friends went to one of my teachers and said, we've got to do something. And so they showed up, a group of my friends showed up at my house one day and they sat on my back porch and they were like, you are not okay. You have got to stop doing this. You don't look good. You know, you, you are sick. You're withdrawing from us. We want you to get better. And again, when I think about 15 and 16 year olds doing that, that takes courage and intervening For someone that you love at the time, the person being intervened on is not pumped about that. But oftentimes later, they look back on that with gratitude. And I actually called my friend and told her that. But what she didn't know is that if only it was as simple as saying, oh, okay, I'll just go ahead and and get better. And I was so, so far into the throes of addiction that even at that time, their words just landed on, on deaf ears. And my dad, who adores food, couldn't understand why I couldn't just start eating. 
And if you've never been in the throes of addiction, you, you just simply can't understand it. And if only it was as simple to start eating or to stop drinking or to stop smoking or whatever it is. And I remember going to the mall and I would sit in the food court and I would watch people eat. And I don't know what the psychology of that is, but I think that my body so desperately wanted to eat, but my mind wouldn't let me. And a visual image that I use for addictions is, I think of addictions almost like an octopus, that an octopus has a head. That's kind of where the center of the disease is. And then there are all these tentacles that wrap around you and go into other areas of your life. So in the fall of 1993, my health had deteriorated to the point where I had to be admitted to the hospital. And again, as I said earlier, I'm so thankful that we live in a day and age where mental health and things like eating disorders and addictions are talked about much more openly. But when I was going through anorexia, it was definitely not. And when I was admitted to the hospital, they were just trying to stop the the massive spiral of my weight loss. And they really had no clue how to treat anorexia. But because there are so many psychological components to anorexia, they admitted me to the psych ward. And when you are 16 years old and you are admitted to the psych ward, it seems like that would be terrifying. But I remember when they, when my parents left and they dropped me off and I got to my room, I remember feeling relieved because I was away from home, the tension at home. I was away from the pressure to eat. And I realized quickly that it was the perfect place for me because as a people pleaser, I was well behaved. So I did exactly what the nurses and the doctors told me to do, and I gave them no issue. And because there were so many of us on that ward and because there were many things to tend to, the doctors and nurses just simply kind of left me alone and they they couldn't pay attention to what I was eating and really didn't know how to focus on my issues. And so I could protect my disease. And I was there for three weeks and I continued to lose weight. And they released me in the fall. Actually, I think y'all that it was this week in 1993 that they released me to outpatient treatment a few weeks before Thanksgiving. And I remember um, going to Thanksgiving a few weeks later and all I ate was just a little can of soup. And I remember sitting next to my granddad and I remember the look on my granddad's face and everyone knew that I was dying before their eyes, but they didn't know how to stop it. And I sure as heck didn't either. And as the fall and winter continued, I... I kept seeing the doctor from the hospital as outpatient, and my sweet mom would drive from Montgomery to Birmingham every week for me to see this doctor, and I continue with the deception. And so every week, even though my parents could see before their eyes and were doing everything that they could, I was continuing to lose weight. But according to his scales, my weight stayed stable because I had learned different methods to add poundage. And after one visit, when my mom and I had gotten home from Birmingham, and I had taken off the layers and layers of clothes that I wore to those appointments. She weighed the bag of clothes, and the bag weighed 15 pounds, and it broke the bag. And once she learned that, she called the doctor. And the next week when I went to my appointment, he weighed me with my clothes on. And I I walked out of the room, and he stopped, and he looked at me, and he goes, You know what? I think I'm going to get the nurse to have you take off your clothes and weigh you. And <laughs> I knew in that moment I was busted. And when the doctor and my parents found out my true weight, he felt like we should just stay the course and see what happened. (laughs) And thankfully, my parents said no. And they were had really come to their last resort. I mean, counselors, doctors, hospital, we were running out of options. But in January of 1994, my parents got connected with an organization called Remuda Ranch. 
And after my mom and dad told me that I was going to Ramuda, which is, which was in Wickenburg, Arizona, that they said I was going to be gone for a few months. And of course I cried and screamed and I told her, I told them I would get better. I would start eating. You may have heard promises from someone you love before, right? When they're pushed against the wall, there's something in them. It's just like this protection. I wanted to get better to please them, but I couldn't and they knew it. And so my mom and dad did the most selfless thing that they could do. And they put me into treatment. And one of the hardest memories before I left for treatment was going to my, to the airport with my dad who couldn't handle flying out. My mom and my aunt went, you know, women are just special strong. There's a movie still Magnolias, which you may have seen before, but it's true. Women just, I don't know. There's just a strength about women and my sweet dad. I remember him hugging me at the airport. And I wanted so bad to please him. And what I didn't know is that he was saying goodbye because the doctors had told my parents that I wasn't likely to make it through treatment. And so we said goodbye. And I got on that plane and we flew to Arizona. And at my weigh-in at Ramuda, I weighed 78 pounds. And the doctor told my mom to say goodbye. And you know what? I'm so glad I didn't know that at the time. I had no idea. And Ramuda was beautiful. I have to tell you that all my friends thought I was going to Bermuda. I remember one of my friends asking me if I was going to learn to surf. And I was like, sure. And so they thought I was going to Bermuda, but I was at Ramuda. And it was a ranch with equine therapy. And I love horses. So it was wonderful. I mean, I was, I remember my first night there. I had this roommate named Tanya. And, you know, when I was thinking about this today, I thought, man, I would love to, to know where all of those girls are and what happened in their life. But I had this roommate named Tanya. And Tanya was a rodeo queen. So we bonded immediately. And I remember that first night, I was so scared. But in a way, you know, I had felt relief when I went to UAB because I could protect my d- disease. But then now I felt a sense of relief because it was almost like, well, here I am. And I'm so thankful that I was only 16 years old because I watched older girls come and go and they could check themselves in and out of Ramuda and they would be gone within two days. But as a 16 year old minor, I didn't have the option but to stay. And I am so glad that was the case for me. By the grace of God and the miracle all credit to God, I began to heal physically. And I'm emphasizing physically for a reason. I was there for two months. And over the course of those two months, there was a counselor named Sherry and a young life leader named Suzanne. And then all the other girls there who were part of my tribe. And we were all working together to get healthy. And we had counseling sessions and equine therapy learning to care for a horse. I remember brushing this horse and they would say like, you know, you have to take care of yourself and and those wonderful animals that God used in my life Um, and body image therapy was part of it too. And part of the struggle, and if you've ever struggled with an eating disorder, then you know this, that part of the struggle with someone with anorexia or bulimia or an eating disorder in general, whatever it is, is that you can't see yourself as you really are. It's called body dysmorphia. And so part of our body image therapy was that they would let, they would have us lay down on a, on a sheet of paper and they would have us trace each other so that you could see the reality of your body. And you know, what you see on the ground does not match up with what you see in the mirror. And that was trying to, to really connect reality with what we, with the difference of what we were seeing. And so over those next two months, thankfully my body did accept the treatment, which again, I say all glory to God. And thankfully at, from the home front, I had my parents, of course, were praying for me. They had to come out for parent week in the middle of it. My teachers worked with me for school. My church prayed for me. There are still letters a few years ago. I went through all the letters that people had sent me and they were these little yellow cards called prayer grams and I would get them in the mail and it was just like home was there and people were praying and I still have all of those. Um, I would get drawn 
drawings from kids, again, thinking I was in Bermuda. So some of the drawings are, are pretty funny. There were levels of treatment at Ramuda, and one level one, you were kind of up in the main house, and then the second level, you moved to the middle house, and then by the third level, I had my own roommate, and my roommate's name was Elizabeth, and every night, Elizabeth would play this little music box that would close out the night, and to this day, I remember the sound of that music box, and it was this safe space. Also, I had this memory, there was a time, there the movie American Tale had come out, and there's, if you've never seen it, there's the little mouse who's separate from his parents. And there's a song that I'm sure you've heard called Somewhere Out There. And sometimes we would play that in the main house and just knowing that there were people out there who cared. So there are just pockets of memories when you have an eating disorder. And particularly if you have anorexia, your body can only tend to the major organs. So what it doesn't need, it doesn't tend to. And so some of my memory is spotty about things, but there are definitely moments that are still connected in my brain. The space at Ramuda was so safe that the day that my counselor, Sherry, came to me and she said, guess what? You're going home. I remember that in front of her, I was like, this is wonderful. And I closed the door and I cried my eyes out. And it wasn't that I didn't want to go home to see my family, but all of a sudden I was going to be injected right back in to my old life. I was so scared. And many of the girls there who were older than me had gone to um, a halfway house before they went home. And looking back, maybe that would have been a good option for me. But as a kid, I had to go ahead and go home. And now physically, I was 20 pounds heavier and moving forward with gaining necessary weight back. But my doctors had told my parents before I went home that it would be 10 years before I experienced true healing. And you know, you hear that and you're like, no, that's not possible. But they were right. Because what they knew that we didn't know was that even though the physical part of anorexia had been dealt with on a level, as I was at a healthy weight or moving towards a healthy weight, the mental and emotional battles were just beginning. And because I had starved myself for so long, my body sucked onto weight and I gained back over what my average was. So you can only imagine the overwhelming feeling that was for especially, I mean, anybody, but particularly a 16-year-old kid. And I remember coming home and having breakdown after breakdown after breakdown. And people would see me, and this is oftentimes what happens, is that when someone is struggling with an addiction, we see the outside first. And so people would see me and think physically everything's getting better. And so they would see me and they would celebrate. But some of their well-intentioned comments were devastating to me, which of course is not their, their fault, but it was truly so very hard for me. And I did go right back to school and I plugged back in. But at that point, I felt like an outsider in many ways. Um, My friends were, were great to me, but they had moved on. A couple of months had passed. And so I was trying to find my space. And I mentioned earlier the illustration of anorexia being like an octopus. And so while I was no longer in the throes of the disease, the tentacles certainly still reached out as I continued down the road of healing. And I could do a whole nother. And by the way, in Bama, we say whole nother, right? My husband's always like, it's another whole. So not in Bama, but I could do another whole podcast about the journey from there. But for time's sake, I'm going to summarize it simply. The tentacle that has been the farthest reaching in my life since being in the throes of anorexia has been around identity. Um, When you go through a struggle like anorexia or any major thing, sometimes it tries to define you. And in my mind, I, for years, felt like I had a scarlet A for anorexia on my chest, and I really struggled to find my space. And when you're in around, when you're 
around any setting in food, there's just this paranoia that people are watching or paying attention to you. But the main part of struggling around identity from anorexia was really rooted in, in unhealthy romantic relationships. And as far as identity, when I was in treatment, one of the things that they told me not to do for one year When I, before, you know, when I got home, they said, do not date for one year when you get home. And I waited a whole two weeks. And so two weeks after I got home from Ramuda, I began dating a sweet guy, but it was way too soon. And that pattern established a really bad pattern in my life for years. And I looked for my security in guys and I would be in a relationship with guy and with a guy. And before I would even break up with him, I would already have another guy that I was interested in and, and be, be moving on to the next guy. And again, was looking for this sense of identity and security and in guys. And of course it did not work because God didn't want me to find my identity in them. He wanted me to find my identity in him. And a key part years later of God breaking that pattern for me was in 2007 when God forced me to take a dating break. And for nine months, so I had dated, again, relationship after relationship after relationship. I could talk for hours about what I learned from those relationships. But when God, it was almost as if he did the same thing that he did for me at Ramuda. And he drew me into a space, a desert space with him. And in those nine months, he rooted me in him. And at the end of that dating break, I reconnected with the man who is now my husband, Matt, who is the most amazing man. And we have a healthy relationship, which is like hashtag unbelievable. And by the grace of God, we have a loving marriage. And I love that man so much. But I want to say this, and I shared this with him last night, and we praised the Lord and cried together that I love him, but he is second to God because my identity is not in my marriage. It is in my relationship with God as his kid. You know, as I look back on the pain point of anorexia, I see it as eventually the reason that I got a few years later into full-time ministry. When God called me into full-time ministry as a 19-year-old kid, all of a sudden I could sit in front of people and I could relate to their struggles. And I knew what it was like to feel what they felt. And I could sit in front of them with a compassionate and empathetic heart. And I was a youth pastor the first part of my ministry career. And one of the girls in my group had an eating disorder and I could see it. And when I saw it, I was able to go to her parents and say, this is what is happening. She was able to go to Ramuda. My parents were able to be a support system for her parents. And now she is thriving. And isn't that so God that he takes our path of brokenness, intersects it with another person's path of brokenness. And then somehow we walk forward on the road of healing together. That is only God. And so after a 21 year ministry career, which I loved, I became a life coach and I sit day in and day out with people who feel discouraged and overwhelmed and unsure of what next steps to take. And I get to sit in front of them and cheer them on and encourage them to go one step at a time. I want to close with this. To get healing, God took me to the desert. And in 2019, so it was 25 years after I had gone to Ramuda Ranch, my husband and I were were considering where to go on vacation. And we had talked about one place, and then we got a flyer in the mail. And when we got this flyer in the mail, on the front of it was a picture of Arizona. And I felt like it was God saying, we need to go back to Arizona. My husband thought it was just a flyer in the mail, but I was like, it is a sign from God that we need to go back to, to Arizona. And at the time that we were going there, I was preparing for a women's retreat. And so I felt like God was taking me back to the space where he had brought healing to my life. And I thought that he was going to do a new thing there as well, but I didn't know what. 
And so my husband and I, we said, okay, we're going to go back to, we chose to go to Sedona, Arizona. So when you fly into to Arizona, you fly into Phoenix and we had to rent a car and drive to Sedona. And so when we were driving down to Arizona, all of a sudden we saw this sign that said Wickenburg. And I was like, babe, do you please mind if we stop? I have got to go see Ramuda. And so we get off the exit and we are driving down the highway and my heart was going 400 miles an hour. And it was like memories were just rolling over me, rolling over me. And we, we got to the middle of Wickenburg and we parked the car and I didn't even really know where the ranch was. I mean, I couldn't remember exactly, but we parked the car and we were walking around the, the, the area. And as we were walking around, all of a sudden I saw a, a nameplate on a door that said Ramuda Ranch. And we tried to open the door, couldn't get in, saw it was abandoned. So we, we thought, well, there has to be something around here though. Cause we knew it was still open. It has a new name called the Meadows, but all of a sudden we rounded the corner and there was the intake center for the Meadows at Ramuda Ranch. And girls, y'all know this is a chick moment, okay? So uh, we're getting close to to the door, and I just feel this overwhelming sense. And I, I open the door, and I walk into the intake desk, and I walked up to this woman, and I was like, God used this ministry to save my life 25 years ago, and I just wanted to come and hug your neck. And she was like, praising the Lord. My husband kind of walked out at that point because it was too chicky for him. But she and I, total strangers, but totally connected because she had been through an eating disorder also. We cried, we hugged, we were thanking the Lord for what he did. And I said, is there any way I know that I can't go into the ranch for privacy's sake, but I would love to see it again. And so she told us where to go. And I remember we were driving and we were having the hardest time finding it. I remember we, we thought we'd found it and it wasn't the place. And I was feeling the sense of discouragement, like, oh man, I'm not going to get to see this. And then all of a sudden we took a right turn and I looked over to the left and there was the ranch. And y'all, I stood there and just wept. I had memory after memory. I could see the the house where I had done counseling with Sherry. I saw the barn where we had taken care of horses. I remembered Elizabeth and I listening to the music box and memories were just flooding over me. And my husband and I just stood there and lifted our hands in worship at what God had done. So after I'd stayed there for a few minutes and just sort of cried for that little girl, I wept for my parents. I wept for the brokenness. It was as if God picked me back up and said, it's time to go forward. And the first thing we did was stop at Taco Bell because after you've had anorexia, you're going to go eat Taco Bell in the name of Jesus and wave it in the enemy's face. Okay. So we got Taco Bell and I was like, enemy in your face. And so when we are eating Taco Bell and we are driving down the highway away from Wickenburg, all of a sudden I see that the name of the highway is Carefree Highway. And I just want you to know that when I saw that, I sat there and thought, I have gone through hell and back, but the enemy did not get the victory. God had the final say in my life and he is my identity. And he took me back to the desert to remind me of who I am anorexia is part of my life that I honestly would not take back, but it does not define me. And the only letter I have on my body is an R, which stands for redeemed. And for years, y'all, I stopped sharing my story because I felt shame. But I sit in front of you today, grateful to have been down that road. And not that there are not things that I would do differently, but because every step that I've taken has led me right here to this moment with you. There's a part of me that wanted to end this podcast with that, with a nice, neat little bow that I'm totally healed from anorexia, but I want to be real with you as I conclude. My struggle with anorexia is not a period. It is a dot, dot, dot. And here's what I mean by that. I still struggle with elements of my eating disorder, if I'm being fully honest. 
There are days that I battle with body image. There are days that I struggle with wanting to count calories. There are days where I feel out of control. I went through a difficult situation a couple of years ago and boy, I just launched back into, you know, just really being controlling around my eating. But here's what I want you to know. Even when I am struggling, I show up before a good God who meets me right in the middle of that struggle and I lay it at his feet and he picks up my burdens and he helps me. Second Peter 1 3 says, For his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And when I show up for God, before God, he helps me one day at a time, one step at a time, and he meets me where I am and he reminds me who I am in him. And that's my story. So the question was, you know, if I could tell teenage girls one thing about body image, I will say this to, to mamas first, be careful what you say around your daughters, because what you'd say, even if you don't project it onto them, they hear it and they project it onto themselves. So if you criticize your body, they're going to criticize their body. Or if you, you know, say, you know, that they're overweight or, or whatever, boy, y'all the, I, in fact, you know, there's been times I've heard someone say something almost innocently. And there's like a pit in my stomach thinking, man, if they have any tendency towards anorexia, like I said, I was grateful that I, my mom did not ever do that. It was just like, we just were healthy. So I would say to mamas, be so careful what you say to your daughters. And then for teenage girls, I would just say that you are not your body. You know, that I would say that you are designed exactly the way God made you and that there is not one standard, that the standard of beauty exists in God and you are beautiful, you know, but I think too, also praising their character. Quite frankly, I try to praise the character in girls more than what they look like, you know, because I think so much of our society is rooted in what we look like that if I can praise a young woman for her kindness or her, you know, compassion or whatever, I try to do that. So I would just say, affirm your daughter's character or your daughter's friend's characters or whoever it is, um, as much as you would praise what they look like. Thank you for asking that. So the question was, uh, I'd mentioned being feeling out of control, you know, like a few years ago, I was going through something I just latched onto to controlling my eating. And did, was there any tendency to do that during COVID? Strangely, so I talked about identity and, and again, I could do another whole, another whole nother podcast on some different things over the last two years. But over the last two years, as God moved me from one career to another, he really rooted me in who I am again, because even the identity piece bled a little bit into my former career. And he was like, nope, this is who you are in me. And so during COVID, I have had very little struggle with controlling, but if things get stressful, I can automatically click into counting calories or like just again, wanting to to, I'll give you, it's like one thing that is really good for me to do is if I'm going to go out to eat with someone, let them pick. I know that sounds so silly, but that way it's like relinquishing control, you know, because there are certain places that sometimes I'll feel like I want to eat here because I know it's healthy or whatever it is. And so it plays out more into being in control of the situations versus like not eating, I guess I would say. But, and quite frankly, it was, I did not want to even admit (laughs) that, but I just felt like the Holy Spirit was like, you got to, because because it's true. And so I feel like the more vulnerable I am and real I am, that there are still aspects of it that I wrestle with, the less power it has over me because it's not hidden. It's like, I've said it, it's real. I could confess it to a friend if I needed to, and they would meet me in it. 
and be like, thank you for being real. And I've also found when I'm real about it, guess what? Somebody else is like, you do that too? You know, and I'm like, yeah, girl. You know, this story hits me so differently. All, all three of us have daughters. Mm-hmm. And so this story hits me so differently mm-hmm. as a mother of a daughter, I think, than, than maybe when I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And I know that we have listeners who are in high school and college and early 20s. Mm-hmm. And I mean, man, this story is so powerful for you, mm-hmm. but also for so many that are moms of daughter and sons. You know, it's not just girls that that suffer from eating disorders just children in general. And so to hear that from her perspective, you know, and the whole time I was thinking, what is her mom thinking? And her mom was there. Right. And that's exactly what I was thinking the whole time I listened to it was, what was her mom thinking? And that was one of the main reasons why I wanted to do a story within the story with her mother there as well. And so we're so grateful that her mom agreed to have a just candid conversation about where she was in it as well. You can find that on our Storytellers Live Community Patreon site. But one of the questions that I asked her was, where was your faith in the middle of this? Because I think as a mom, you're thinking, God, fix this. Mm-hmm. And and she spoke about, I mean, it's not like it was, she was dying of starvation. Yeah. And she talked about, I mean, here my daughter is dying of starvation. This is just unbelievable. And I love being able to ask her, okay, Anne, where was your faith in the middle of all this? And this is what she said that came that I realized, unless I said, Lord, if it is your will in some weird way, you're going to get glory through this ending being different, then I have to give her to you. And it was the scariest prayer I ever prayed in my life. And it was sort of like, well, I sort of don't really mean that, Lord, but I I, I want to. And um, it was not just a one-time prayer. It became a daily prayer of, God, if you don't work, this isn't going to work because um, the enemy was so strong. When I became pregnant with Mary Beth, we had already lost a baby. And my grandmother, I was just barely pregnant, laid her hands on my stomach and she prayed. She said, Lord, I want you to anoint this child with your Holy Spirit because you've already told me that this child is going to do great things for you as an adult. And I clung to that. Because my mamma could pray. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, you know, there were so many pieces where God did send mercies new every day. We, we just had the support of others. That's why if God puts a thought in your mind, call somebody, send them a card, do something to show them you're with them. Oh, it's so valuable. So valuable. Because till that time, life had been kind of Pollyanna for all of us. You know, I was 46 kind of had one of those leave it to beaver lives where everything fell into place. And then suddenly it was like, whoa, this is what the rest of the world has been feeling when they, when their gut is in the floor, you know? So it was, it was new for us. God, God was faithful in it. He was more faithful than we were because we have to remember who's holding who. When our hands are too weak to hold his, his are not too weak to hold us. Oh, I loved how she ended that with saying, you know, when our hands are too weak to hold God's, his are not too weak to hold ours. And, and, you know, she also spoke a little bit about the body of Christ. We weren't able to, um, to air that right there, but she spoke about how the body of Christ just held her up 
the prayers that people were praying um, over her and over Mary Beth. And that really spoke to me and just the importance of, and she said that, you know, that, that when you feel God laying something on your heart to act on that, to, to try to reach out to, to others who, you know, we need to, to stand in the gap for mm-hmm. the community of believers as well. And what a lesson just for parenting in general, whether yes. you, you are going through a major struggle. Yeah like an eating disorder, or just the day to day Mm -hmm. of having Mm -hmm. to surrender your children, Mm -hmm. and to surrender our children to him. It was interesting to me that I I forget this, that an eating disorder is an addiction, Mm -hmm. and that it plays those same roles. Mm -hmm. Uh, She talked a lot about the deceit Mm -hmm. that came over her and and that kind of thing, and how you work so hard to hide the addiction, Mm -hmm. but how how God wants his light to shine. And his light certainly did shine in her life. Didn't you love when she went back to Ramuda? Yes. And I mean, she was on the, the carefree highway. And then she's oh. like, and we went to Taco Bell. But, you know, in your face, Satan. Yes. I loved it. I did too. She's such a vivid storyteller. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I could picture myself there. Yes, every right there with her. step of the way. And, and it just speaks to so much more than addiction. Like, you, mm-hmm. you know, we hear a lot of different addiction stories, but this, it just really painted a picture of, of how the enemy can just get into your mm-hmm. mind. And and so much shifts, you know, but like you said, Lindy, that, that God is always bigger and that there's always light. And she has found such purpose in reaching back mm-hmm. and helping others, reaching forward and helping others. And, you know, even just that her friend was your college roommate, she she referred to, you know, God intersects the paths yes. of brokenness. Yes. And that is what we try to do with storytellers to make people realize, hey, Somebody else has been through this too. You are not yeah. alone. Yeah, he intersects that path, and mm-hmm. then you move forward together in yes. healing. Which is, which I love how she said that. Mm-hmm. So you know, this is one of those stories that probably you know someone who has suffered, mm-hmm. and we would love for you to pass it along. Mm-hmm. If there is a prompting, if God's prompting you to text this to a friend mm-hmm. or share it with them, do not be afraid to do that. You know, this may be a story that just one person needs to hear. Mm-hmm to find help and hope. And so we would love for you to share this. And so we and we thank you for joining us today and our first story of the new year. And again, you know, Katie mentioned early on in a little while ago that we did a follow up interview with Mary Beth and her mm-hmm. mom in our Patreon Storytellers Live community. And so if you are not a member, today is a great day to join because I promise you that this interview, holy oh, it was, cow. It was an incredible conversation. We like, I was we... so blessed that they were willing to do it. And, and Mary Beth, Beth goes really into details about mm-hmm. the tentacles of the mm-hmm. octopus and, and, you know, where she was struggling and how that led her, you know, to her addiction and to hiding her addiction as well. So it's really good. So we would Powerful. love for you. Yes, we would love for you to join us over on Patreon. And you can do that at our website, StorytellersLive.org. You can click join our Storytellers Live community on Patreon, or you can go straight there. And it's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash S-T-L community. And you can actually have all the podcasts delivered straight into your podcast feed, just like you do our every Wednesday story. And there's instructions on that on our Instagram page, which is at Storytellers Live Podcast. So have a great week. Happy New Year. And we will talk to you next week.